temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Are you tired of all those conversations about whether to lean in or lean out? Me too. The reality is, is 43% of women who have kids, we leave the workforce at some point. And those punchy think pieces that make these huge generalizations about motherhood and work, telling us what we should and shouldn't do, I'm over it. Claudia Reuter, she is too. She's a former stay-at-home mom and a CEO who hosts The 43%. It's a podcast that goes beyond the tired stories about how to balance motherhood and a career. Claudia has honest, insightful conversations with women about their journeys towards creating lives that include both family and career. She talks with authors and tech executives, doctors, entrepreneurs, stay-at-home moms, and so many more. And they delve into their professional journeys and they give advice that's actually helpful. Tune in for season two every Wednesday and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Hi, welcome to Brave Not Perfect. I'm Reshma, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. So all our lives, women are taught to be perfect. And you know what? I'm over it. Perfectionism a cruel joke. To achieve our dreams, we need to take risks and sometimes fall flat on our faces. Over the last six weeks, I have done it all. I've gone singing in public, I faced one of my biggest childhood fears, and I've gone flying through the air. Today, for my last challenge of the season, I'm going to do the scariest thing of all. I'm going to tell you about something that truly keeps me up at night. Each of us has one dream, one challenge, one move quietly calling to us. Something that could profoundly change our lives. Something we're afraid to do. That thing that's called your ledge. Your ledge might not be something you're ready to do yet, but it's something you should be looking at and thinking about. So what's my ledge? My ledge is running for office. I'm not ready to step off that ledge and put myself out there again. As you know, I ran twice, lost twice. Honestly, (laughs) I don't even want to think about it. But if I'm going to take my own advice, I need to start looking at it. I need to decide if running for office is actually something I want to do again. We got a great show for you today. Coming up, I'm going to take a hard look at that dream and quite frankly, that fear I have about running for office with Sarah McBride. If you don't know Sarah, you should. 
She's already made history a handful of times. For instance, when she took the stage at the Democratic National Convention, she became the first openly transgender person to speak at a major party convention. And Sarah's on her way to becoming the first openly transgender state senator in history. When we ask people to sit back and allow for a slow conversation to take place before we treat them with dignity and ensure them opportunity, we are asking people to watch their one life pass by without the respect and fairness that every person deserves. And that's too much to ask of anyone. Basically, Sarah is a bravery badass making real change. But first, I've got an incredible story that's going to give you goosebumps that I have been waiting to share with you for a while. It involves high school sweethearts with matching tattoos. Learning how to believe in yourself, and you guessed it, taking that first step as you peer off your ledge. Gabby Acosta decided to be brave, not perfect, with the support of her wife, Janelle Acosta. When things weren't going according to plan at Gabby's work, she took a big step. I'm going to let the two of them take it from here. I'm Gabby. And I'm Janelle. We're wives. (laughs) We are wives. And I am currently the producer and host of The Way We Lead podcast. And I'm the co-host. I had just planned a really challenging conference with a tiny team with almost no resources. And I came back from this conference and then I learned almost immediately that the role that I had been in was being dissolved. To be honest, I was devastated because I had worked my took us off. I had worked really hard and I've worked for this company for the last seven years. So I was feeling like I had failed for the first time. Uh, Right after I found this out, I came home and Janelle and I sat on the couch and we both were devastated. We both cried. And so I went away on a, a week long trip just to get some distance. And on that trip, it just happened to be that I was listening to a podcast and Rashma was on it and she was talking about her book, Brave Not Perfect. And I immediately downloaded it and read it within a day and a half. It felt like a question I never really asked that I needed answered, that I didn't realize I needed answered, was right there before me. And I suddenly was like, okay, I can persevere from here. I don't have to just let myself sit in this failure. Yeah. And so during the same time that you lost your job and trying to figure out what you wanted to do, I was going for a promotion at work uh, that I thought I was going to get. I thought I was a shoe-in. Everybody around me thought I was a shoe-in. And just shortly after we knew that you weren't going to have your job anymore, when that first happened, I was like, okay, at least I'm going to get this promotion and I'll make more money and it's going to be okay. Um, And then I didn't even make it through the first round. And I was trying really hard to be okay with that, but I wasn't. And that's when you said, you should read this book. It's called Brave Not Perfect. Go ahead and try that on. So I started reading it. I am not a reader at all. Um, I think I've read maybe five or six books in my entire life. And I finished the book in a day and a half. I think like two days later, I wake up and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to go get a tattoo after work. I'm going to get Brave Not Perfect on me. I want it in this typewriter font on my arm as a reminder every single day. And I thought about it the night before, woke up and said, this is what I'm going to do. And that same night, I had woken up at like three in the morning and I thought, 
Okay, this is significant enough for me. I've always wanted a tattoo, but I never knew what to get. And I've always been a perfectionist about putting a tattoo on my body. Like I'd wait an entire year from the moment that I decided what tattoo I wanted, exactly where I wanted. And if a year later it changed in any way, I wouldn't get it. And this is the first time that in that moment, I was like, it means so much to me, the message of being brave and not perfect, that I want to go get this tattoo. So I woke up and you turned to me and you said, when are you getting your next tattoo? Which I thought was entertaining because my answer was today after work, but I wasn't going to tell you. And you went, really? You always tell me things. Why? What What are you going to go get? I was like, I'm going to go get Brave Not Perfect. And you looked at me and were like, are you kidding? Because that's what I want to go get, which was already weird for me because you have always been sort of adverse to getting tattoos in the first place. And you're like, are you sure you don't want to wait like a couple of weeks and then maybe I can think about it more and then we can do it? And I said, no, I'm going after work today, whether or not you want to come. I need to do this for myself. And we, we went, we went that day. I was just like, okay, here it goes. I'm being brave, not perfect about my be brave, not perfect tattoo. And I just went in and got it. And I have never felt so proud of myself because it was like that first tiny act of bravery about something that scared me throughout my entire life. It was almost like a snowball effect. I started taking smaller and bigger actions every day that scared me a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I just started practicing being braver to the point that, you know, when you eventually turned to me and said, why don't you take a leap and do what you've always wanted and start your own business? When you said that at first, I was like, no, I I couldn't possibly do that. Yeah, because I remember I remember when you were looking at different jobs, applying to different things, deciding if we might be able to make something new for you within the company. But you were also saying, I don't know, I just, I want to do what I love, which is tell stories and talk about diversity and inclusion and social justice. And, and I remember saying to you, I was like, why don't you just do, do it? Why don't you just take this on and try it on? We're going to be okay. The worst thing that happens is I let you try it on or we we try it on together for a year and it doesn't work. And you looked at me when I said, "Okay, why don't you just do this? Why don't you not go get a job someplace else? And you looked at me as if it was the strangest thing in the world for me to give you permission to go do that. Yeah, it felt like not just an act of bravery for me, but for both of us, because it meant putting our little family in a new situation, in a, in a situation that was more precarious. It felt like such a big risk that you were just handing over to me. You're like, hey, hey, here's your dream on a platter. Don't you just want to grab it and take it? And I honestly think that before I read this book, I would have been like, absolutely not. I need structure. I need to have my own benefits. We're planning to have a, a family someday. And I, I want to make sure that we're saving up for that. And in that moment, you know, after a little bit of thought, I was like, okay, it does feel like the the moment to be brave, not perfect. And that's kind of the catalyst to start not only my business, but it was also the catalyst to start this podcast that we started together, The Way We Lead, which is all about inclusive leadership and allyship and advocacy for underrepresented folks. I have never been more proud of you because 
We've been together for over 13 years now, and I have always known you as somebody who was so smart, so driven, so intelligent in in everything that you do and so thoughtful in what you do, but you always held yourself back and really waited for somebody else to give you the hand to do things and to tell you that you were ready rather than you just telling yourself. And this was the first time, don't get me wrong, it took some pep talks getting you there, but this was the first time that you said, okay, I'm going to take a chance on me. Yeah. And I said to somebody recently, I wish I had failed sooner because (laughs) if I had let myself fail sooner, I wouldn't have been living my life within these like false boundaries that I had created for myself. Like I've been so much more willing to take a chance to live the exact life that I really actually wanted, but I always thought was too unrealistic. And then failure happened and it forced me to make a change and I would never have made this change without failure. And I'm incredibly thankful for it because it has given me the chance to learn that failure is now just a stepping stone to success. Wow. I am so moved by their story. I'm speechless. I'm sending both of you so much love, so much support and wishing you the best. The podcast Gabby and Janelle are making about inclusive leadership they mentioned, it's called The Way We Lead. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform, and you might even hear me on their show. If you have a brave, not perfect story, I would love for you to share it with me. You can get in touch by leaving me a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. And you can find that number in the description of this episode. Are you looking for something to listen to in between episodes of Brave Not Perfect or hungry for more brave feminist voices? Tune in to Popaganda. It's a twice-monthly feminist pop culture podcast from Bitch Media. Popaganda's heat season is available now. It explores everything from sex talk to the Spice Girls, and it's hosted by feminist writer, editor, and digital media superstar Carmen Rios, who has spent over 10 years talking back from the feminist front lines. Propaganda features feminist activists, thinkers, and legends alike. And each episode grapples with the urgency of a feminist future while charting a course toward culture change. Get each episode while it's hot. And don't miss a minute of the burning questions the show explores. Listen and subscribe to Propaganda wherever you get your feminist podcast fix. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. I have so many feelings just thinking about the possibility of running for office again. I'm excited. I'm scared. I feel overwhelmed. And I'm prepping for my interview with Sarah McBride right now. Um, My heart's racing a little bit because I don't know if I want to talk about this. It's that little voice in my head that's nagging at me that I've been pushing down and just trying to ignore. But I'm excited to talk through this with Sarah. She's a rock star. Right now, she's running for a state Senate seat in Delaware. So she's pretty busy right now. And I appreciate her taking a moment away from that really important campaign to talk to me. Like I've mentioned before, if she wins, she's going to be the first openly transgender state senator. And I got this feeling she's going to win. Oh, well, here goes nothing. 
I'm so excited about your race. Thank you so much. I am so excited as well. It's been a whirlwind of a month or so, uh, but in a great way. So I wanted to talk to you because as you may or may not know, like I've run for office twice. I've lost twice. And I think especially after my second loss, I just kind of was like, wow, like maybe this isn't for me. And even though I've wanted to run for office since I was a little girl, I thought, okay, this is not going to happen. And maybe the way that I can make a bigger difference is through Girls Who Code. And so as part of writing my book, it realized to me, like, am I just saying that to myself or is that really true? Like, am I telling myself that narrative because I don't want to try and fail again? And so Ashley, who is on the phone, my podcast producer, they wanted me to explore that. And I know that you're someone who is deeply passionate about public service and you've struggled with this question of whether to run or not to run. And I wanted to just kind of get in deep with you about this. So I know you've always wanted to hold office, right? It was a dream for you since you were a kid like me. But how did you go from it being a dream to actually running? Growing up for the first 21 years of my life, it seemed like my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. And everything from pop culture to politics at the time to the history books that I read, everything sort of led me to believe that they were mutually exclusive. Um, That the idea that you could be transgender and run for office, that that was so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really been the last six to seven years that has proven to me that transgender people can pursue their dreams, can, can, can rise to levels of achievement in all different kinds of fields, including in politics, and that there is, is room for, for people like me at the table. So why did, how did you pick this seat to run for? And tell, tell everybody what you're running for and all that. I announced for uh, state Senate to represent the first Senate district in Delaware. Uh, but this is the district that I was born and raised in. The communities throughout this district literally helped shape me into the person that I am. And, and almost more importantly, they help support me and sustain me through some of the most difficult challenges in my own life, particularly the, the loss of, of my husband, Andy. I, I've seen this community and this state at its best. Delaware is a small state, and we like to think of ourselves as a state of neighbors. But I also know that far too many of my own neighbors still feel left behind and, and still wonder whether they'll be able to make it at all. And so I'm running in this district because it's a district that means so much to me. It's a district I want to give back to after it's offered me so much. And it's a district and a state that I believe still has a ways to go before we live up to our values as a state of neighbors for every single one of us. Yeah. So a lot of young people I talk to are like, I want to run, but I don't know where, I don't know what, I don't know how. Like, what's the best advice that you've gotten or you could give of like, how do you figure this out? One of the things that I always try to impress upon people is to not ignore the change that's right in front of you. And what I have seen throughout my life and throughout my work is that the decisions and the policies that impact us the most, they are handled at the state level. There's always a lot of talk about Congress and the U.S. Senate and the presidency. And whether I'm talking to you as a voter, as a volunteer, or someone who's thinking about running for office, my encouragement is to never ignore the change that's right in front of you, that there are a lot of issues that matter to a lot of people at the school board level and the city council level and the and the county level and the state level, and to not ignore the opportunities to contribute there. And that's one of the reasons why I'm running for state Senate, even having done work nationally, is that there's change right in front of me that I want to help move the ball forward on. But hopefully you'll still run for president one day, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> 
So I want to talk about your moment. You made history when you spoke at the DNC in 2016, the Democratic National Convention. And you had made some headlines before that, but that speech was really like, this was your time on the national stage. This was like your moment. And, you know, I talk a lot about bravery on the show. We talk a lot about bravery and that's a pretty brave moment. Like I've been to quite a few conventions and it's a pretty intimidating, powerful room. How did you brave yourself up for that? The week of the convention was was a whirlwind experience. And I think fortunately the stream of interviews that I had to do throughout that week kind of kept me from really digesting the fullness of the moment. I remember when I got the news that I would be speaking at the Democratic National Convention, I thought, well, this is a wonderful moment. But I didn't fully realize, I think, just how pivotal and affirming that moment would be for the community. And I think the speaking slot that I had at the convention was one of the first sort of big public moments where the trans community was able to see politics, which is this unfortunately historically cautious field, so fully and publicly embrace our cause as their cause. And I didn't quite realize until it was announced and until I saw the reaction to the news just how much it could mean for so many people within this community that for so long had felt like at best we were a burden in the conversation around politics and at worst a pawn and a a lightning rod for controversy. That was a really powerful realization, but I think that realization reinforced for me the responsibility that I had on that stage to do right by my community and make my community proud. Truthfully, right before I got on the stage, I was particularly nervous about my delivery, to be honest. And I remember right before I went on, someone said to me, you're a few hours before Hillary Clinton's going to be speaking. Everyone's in the arena, but no one's going to be listening because everyone's just here to hear Hillary. And so people are going to be talking and it's going to be loud in the arena. And the instinct for speakers is to start screaming, to try to get the attention of the arena and invite them in. And I thought, oh my God. I'm going to fall into that trap and I'm going to start screaming and, and projecting too much. And as the person said, it's going to look terrible on television. But those nerves went away the moment I got on that stage. And for the first time that night, the audience was applauding and listening and engaged. And it wasn't about me. It was about the fact that they knew that this was a special moment. Wow. You know, it's funny listening to you like that could feel like a lot right? It's a lot of beauty. It's a lot of pressure. How do you take care of yourself, right? And make room for yourself when so many people hold you up as a symbol? You know, that's a good, it's a good question. I, I think in some ways, um, I try to put that pressure or those experiences into perspective. I think that's something that for me has been a constant in my life that no matter what I face, Whatever weight is on my shoulder in that moment or in that experience or in that role pales in comparison to the weight that's on the shoulders of so many other people. And truthfully, none of these experiences will ever compare to the emotional toll of being the caregiver to my, to my late spouse, Andy, who passed away from cancer. And I think in many ways that experience prepared me to process the beauty and the hardship My brother, who's a radiation oncologist, said to me in the final months of Andy's life that this experience was going to be incredibly difficult, but that I should look around me and take stock in the acts of amazing grace that will fill my life. And that grace, those miracles were everywhere from 
our friends organizing a wedding for us in order to marry before Andy passed away in just a week to Andy surviving long enough to marry me. And I think what that experience taught me is that throughout everything, from the most difficult times in our own lives to the most positive but at times scary because they are so big moments in our lives, that we should all take a moment to look around us and take stock in the acts of amazing grace that are everywhere. And that gives me so much comfort, no matter what I'm facing and no matter what we're facing together. So you know what? It's so um, powerful listening to you because in many ways, like you don't sound like a politician. And so much of my fear or my, I guess, reluctance, right, to run again is it feels like when I look at our political leaders, quite frankly, on both sides, they feel really inauthentic, right? They're not often coming from a place of love and compassion. And many of them are doing this because it's a paycheck. It's a job, right? So like you have so much you want to give to the world. So many people you want to fight for. Why public office and not something else? I think it sort of goes back to the thing that first interested me in in politics and government, which is that politics is the place where every avenue of society converges. And there's so many different ways to make change, but where you can make the most amount of change for the most number of people in the most significant way possible. And that change only happens in politics because of advocates, because of voters, because of folks in every industry who are advocating and and mobilizing to effectuate change. But at the end of the day, having spent several years on the outside of the room um, fighting to advance legislation, fighting to advance policies, I feel like at this moment in our politics, particularly, I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I don't even want to just be fighting outside the room. I want to have a seat at the table because I believe that if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. Yeah. I, I think I feel even more deeply about this than I, than I ever have, that right now we are falling into this moment of cynicism and despair in our politics. And it's understandable, right? I, I get it. And for all that's happening and all of the talking heads and tweets at the national level, I have still never been more hopeful that change is possible. I've never been more optimistic about the possibilities for progress before us. And I think that that's a byproduct of the change that I've seen in my own life, the experiences that I have in my own life. And I know that if we fall into the despair and the cynicism that this moment in our politics understandably elicits, then the politics of fear and of hatred and of division win. And I want us to have a renewed sense of hope and optimism in our politics, a renewed commitment to progress and change. And and I feel like given the experiences I've had in my life, given the things that I've seen in my life, I can help contribute to that at what I think is a really pivotal inflection point in our politics. And we have to decide whether we're going to lean in to hope and optimism and change or whether we're going to take the understandable but also easier route of just throwing up our hands and saying the task is too great, the challenges are too big, and ignore the fact that it's actually been in the moments of our biggest challenges, in the moments of our most significant crises in this country and as humanity, that we end up actually taking our biggest steps forward. Well, you're starting to convince me. (laughs) Good, you should run. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think... 
Look, I think I will again one day. Good. I just, for me in this moment, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. It's like, okay, where can I make the greatest amount of change? Like I want to live my life by living my life of like, what can I do that's best for the people now? Right. And I think that there is, I feel this way as a South Asian woman. I feel this way as a woman of color that, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. Right. And so it behooves people like us, right. To get in the arena and to fight because then there's so many people behind us that look like us, that have the same journeys as us, that went through the same, same things that could say, well, okay, if she can do it, I can do it too. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it goes to the point that I made about we can't ignore the change that's right in front of us. And sometimes that change means change in a legislative sense. Sometimes it means change in starting a nonprofit. Sometimes it means change in being an advocate. There are so many different ways to contribute to change. And and I, I certainly hear you on there are opportunities right in front of us to make change and we have to seize them when we see them. Yeah. It's really powerful to hear you talk about Andy and like I'm sh- that what that experience meant for you. And like, it's almost, I'm sure, built in a sense of you of like, I've been through the darkness, right? Like I've experienced this sense of life and I know what's important and what's not important. And I think a lot of the pitfalls that our politicians often get into with ego and with making it about them, like you're not going to fall into that because of what life has thrown at you. I, I I certainly feel that way. I think there there are two experiences in my life that that I think more than than any other have put things into perspective. One was obviously my journey to coming out, and and in many ways, in order to come out, I had to give up on my dreams. I had to accept the possibility in the fear that I had that my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. And, and I'm so fortunate that in the time since then, I have come to see that that wasn't the case. But the process, the journey of getting there required me to say, you know what, there are just some things that are more important. And authenticity and life and, and living life to the fullest and being your true self and being able to look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with what you see, whatever that may mean, that those things were more important than running for office, that those things were more important than, than the title or the position. And so I think in many ways that put things into perspective when it comes to politics, that there are things that are just more important than being elected to public office. And then the second is, to your point, the experiences with Andy, which for me certainly put things into perspective in terms of what people face in terms of the challenges that particularly working people and working families face, you know, having to, to struggle with surprise medical bills, even when you have good health insurance, having to struggle with a full-time job when you're also serving as a caregiver or taking care of your own health, right? These issues that people are facing without the same kind of support and help that I had. But I think it also reinforced for me a sense of urgency that change cannot come fast enough. And the takeaway that I had overall from Andy's passing at the age of 27 was that when we ask LGBTQ people or working people or women or people with disabilities or Muslims or immigrants, when we ask people to sit back and allow for a slow conversation to take place before we treat them with dignity and ensure them opportunity, we are asking people to watch their one life pass by without the respect and fairness that every person deserves. And that's too much to ask of anyone. And 
as long as we have no idea how long we have on this earth, we then have a responsibility to ensure that we do not waste a single day in allowing people to live their lives to the fullest. And I think that that sense of urgency and the sense that every day matters in this fight, that is for me the most formative experience in my life and the most significant driver in why I'm running, why I'm running now, and why I want to run on a bold platform of new ideas that don't just meet the needs of my constituents, but meet those needs as quickly as possible. You are one in a million. Thank you. Okay, everyone, I took the first step. So now for your last bravery challenge this season, I want you to do the same thing. What's that thing that's hanging over you, that dream you want to pursue? I want you just to start. Take one small step. Maybe it's buying the URL for your future business website or just speaking your dream out loud. Maybe it's setting up a conversation with someone who can give you guidance and advice. Maybe you're too overwhelmed to even think about that big thing because you really just need to clean your house. If that's the case, just start with one shelf. Or maybe your finances are a mess and you're scared to even look. Start making a budget or just set up a meeting with a financial advisor. Remember, everyone's different and not every challenge is gonna be right for everyone. So as you're going through episodes from earlier this season, if one of the challenges isn't right for you, do something else that's brave, that does make sense for you. To go back and do the full six-week bravery challenge, start with the episode called Stop People Pleasing, featuring Elaine Welteroth. Once you're done with your challenge, I want to hear about it. How'd it go? You can leave me a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. And we're going to take a little break to get ready for next season. In the meantime, I want to invite you somewhere with a ton of incredible Brave Not Perfect energy where you can keep the conversation going. We've got this really supportive Facebook group where everyone lifts each other up and we support one another on our Brave Not Perfect journeys. You can connect with me and other listeners there. Super easy to find. Just look up Brave Not Perfect on Facebook. See you later. Oh, hey, have you been enjoying this season of Brave Not Perfect? Rushman and I have been having so much fun and working hard to bring you all these bravery challenges. And one way that you can support our show is by sharing it with a friend or leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it so much and it will help more people choose bravery over perfection. I'm Ashley Dejon, your executive producer. Tanya Zaparonic and Charlotte Stone plotted with me all season, co-producing the show. And of course, it couldn't be done without Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson, who lift us up at least as high as Rushma in her trapeze class earlier this season. I also want to thank the incredible Norhan Elbermaui. She supported the show by making sure everything was up to date on our website, bravenotperfect.com. And I want to give a special big shout out to all the listeners who called in or reached out to us with their Brave Not Perfect stories. We loved hearing from you and we'll be continuing to share those stories in future seasons. So keep leaving us those voicemails. The number's in the description of this episode. See you next season.